Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We have a number of passages that we will look at uh, this morning or refer to this morning. But this is a primary text that captures both the conviction of sin and the grace of God. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. It's the passage that immediately precedes what we read for the prayer of confession. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us a genuine awareness of the depth of our own sin and the greatness of your grace extended to us in Christ. And let us go out to the world around us with the message of both the righteousness that you require and the grace that meets us in our need. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It is an age-old Christian maxim that we are to love the sinner while hating the sin. Where do we get that from? We get it from the Bible. It is how God himself relates to us. Romans 5, 8 is the classic. I, I hope you've heard it enough times if you've been at Sycamore for any length of time that it's written on your heart and you cannot unremember it. That God demonstrates his love for us in this. That while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is the one who loved the sinner while hating the sin. He shows us how. And he shows the links that he would go to to redeem us from our sin. He hates it so much, he wanted to cleanse us from it and to bring us back to himself because he loves us so much. Now, if you've been around for uh, six or seven years, you might remember my most uh, infamous, perhaps, uh, sermon illustration when I brought my unicycle up here. And I actually rode the unicycle back and forth on the stage. And the point was this. We need balance. But balance is not between the scriptures and the world. That's not balance. Balance is staying centered on Jesus Christ and his word. And in scripture we find the conviction of sin and the grace of God both spelled out and, and how they play together. One leads to the other. That's balance. With the unicycle, there is not just two ways to fall off, the right or the left. There are 360 degrees worth of ways to fall off a unicycle. 
And we can fall off of Christ and his word in so many different directions. Now, I want to take that balance illustration one step further this morning. I'm not, I'm not about to do this because I can't. But you know the high wire act in the circus? When, when I balance on the unicycle, the first thing you do is you put your arms out. Why? Because a little bit of spread gives you something to work with for balance. One of the high wire act, what do the acrobats use? They use those big, long bars, 50 feet long, perhaps, that stretch out in both directions. And by those bars, they actually have more control, more balance. That's the kind of balance we need to be centered on Christ, because in one direction, we find the law of God, which convicts of sin. This is right. This is wrong. This is how we fall far short. And that conviction of sin is a lot bigger than you might think. Tim Keller quoted Jack Miller, who I'm sure was quoting somebody else from one of the early church fathers, because once you pointed out, it's so true that our sin is far greater than you dared uh, to imagine, than you thought it was. But the grace of God is far greater than you dared to imagine. Without the, uh, the, the, I want to say depth, but in my illustration is the width. Without the length of the conviction of sin and the counterbalance of the grace of God, there's no way to stay on that high wire. We can't keep our balance if we are, are shallow in our conviction of sin and shallow in our understanding of the grace of God. If we think that God is a loving God up there, he's in, kind of an old man in the sky who winks at sin, and we discount that, and we just emphasize the grace of God and the love of God, it's like holding on to a 25-foot pole stretching out in that direction with nothing over here. There's no way you can stay. Balance. You can stay up. Or if you emphasize the law of God, and the conviction of sin, and this is right and this is wrong, and you don't have the grace of God to deal with it. You can't stay up. You'll fall. This is what I mean by balance. Balance is not compromise with the world, half the Bible, half the world. It's to be centered on Christ and his word. Well, what has happened to make this issue of homosexuality become it's such a, a buzz issue. It has come to the forefront. Well, in 2015, the Supreme Court uh, decided uh, that same-sex marriage was a constitutional right. And, I mean, it had to be percolating in our culture for many, many years to get to that point. But before that, 10 years ago, the majority of our culture supported basically a Christian uh, ethic of, of marriage and uh, sexuality even though there was lots of disregard for it, most people would tip their hat to it and say, that's right. Since that decision, and especially perhaps in, in generations, you find huge percentages. I've, I've read as much as 85 90% of uh, college-age kids are supportive of the Supreme Court decision as being a definition of what is right. Now, just because the Supreme Court decides something doesn't make it right. Slavery was once a constitutional right. Doesn't make it right. So that has made it a buzz issue. 
So a number of church leaders across a number of denominations met in Nashville. It was a conference held by the Council on Biblical Manhood and and Womanhood. Um, And they issued a statement called the Nashville Statement addressing the issue of biblical sexuality. And I, I have that. You can find that online. You can see in the bulletin if you want to look it up because when they get to the part of the outline that says, what did the PCA do? We affirm this as a biblical uh, statement. So it's an important document now. The Nashville statement came out, and then in response perhaps to the Nashville statement, I mean, people are all over the place. When there's so many different people involved with different viewpoints. It's like wrestling with jello. Um, it's... You can't quite pin it down. But some have said that the Revoice movement, which is an outreach uh, to the LGBTQ+, please forgive me if I get it wrong in terms of the way people desire to be referred uh, to. They wanted to reach out in love, and they thought that the national statement was too harsh and exclusive. And this... uh, Revoice movement was a response to that. Now, we as a church have supported Set Free Ministries as a uh, a loving Christian outreach uh, to the gay community uh, in our city for 25, 30 years before this ever became a buzz issue. Revoice, however, did some things that in some of their seminars went so over the line that it has raised great concern because a Revoice conference was held in the PCA church in Missouri. And that raised the alarm for our General Assembly, and a whole bunch of overtures came and said, are we sliding with so many other denominations into approving of that which is not biblical? And so the overtures came uh, to the General Assembly. That's why we put it before you, and I even put in the outline Maybe a simplistic summary. This is the concern about Revoice. Some in Revoice, and notice that some in Revoice, not everybody in Revoice. Some in Revoice, some of the seminars say it is unloving to call the orientation itself sinful. The orientation only becomes sin when it is acted upon. And that's the part that's raised the alarm. But think about that. Hmm, I don't think I've ever put hmm in the bulletin as your outline before. I should use it more often. Hmm, think about that one. We don't justify our orientation in any area of sin and say it's only a temptation. My selfishness that's a part of my old nature, part of the flesh, part of the, of the, the, the self that I need to deny daily to follow Christ. I don't say that's just a temptation. My selfishness itself is a sin. Heterosexual lust before marriage, outside of marriage, is sinful. God gave us a desire for the, uh, to be fulfilled and consummated in marriage. But he said uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, if you lust in your heart for one who's not yours, it's not your right, you've committed adultery with her, with her in your heart. So that kind of lust, the lust itself is not just temptation, it is sin. That's the issue. So before we deal directly with it, I want to lay some more groundwork. I've already referred to Romans 5.8, that God loves you. While you were yet sinners, God demonstrated his love for you in this, that while you were still a sinner, 
Christ died for you. It's Romans 5.8. Isaiah 53.6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The conviction of sin always sets up an understanding of the grace of God. That our sin was placed on Christ. The, uh, that our iniquity was placed on him. The promised one uh, from Isaiah promising Christ to come. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In the children's inquiries class, we memorize this. This is one of the, the staple verses. And I say, does that include me? Am I a sinner? They say, yes. They have too much fun saying, yes, usually. I say, is Miss Becky a sinner? Yes. Does that mean you're a sinner? Yes. That's the way we respond to it. It's easy to point to the other person. It's harder to point to ourselves, but we all are in the same boat. We need to approach this subject recognizing that. We may have different inclinations, different struggles with sin, but we're all in the same boat. Okay? What does the Bible say about homosexuality? We've already read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Just want to comment on that about how all-inclusive it is. It's not just spelling out uh, the sins of, of homosexuality, it includes that in a bigger list. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters. We say idolatry, that's just what people used to do or people in other places do. Idolatry is what you put anything in, in your heart's desire that's more important than God. What is really your God? Idolatry. Nor adulterers. Pharisees would say, I never committed that. Jesus said, you've committed in your heart. Nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders. That's included in the larger list. Nor thieves. You say, well, I've never really done that. Well, I might have peeked on somebody's paper when I was back in school. Stole some information. It gets a little closer to home, but I'm not like the thief on the cross. Nor the greedy. That's dealing right with an attitude of the heart. That's not an action. That's the attitude of the heart, the greed that we have to put off daily. Nor drunkards. Don't we like to say partiers instead of drunkards? Just having fun. Nor slanderers. How did that make the list with all the rest of them? Have you ever put down somebody else deliberately because you were upset or it just made you feel better? Slanderers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. See, this, this half of the passage is stretching out the pole 25, 30, 50 feet, make it a mile. It's real conviction of sin. But that's not all the passage says. It goes on to the grace of God, and that is what some of you were. Why some of you? He's not saying some of you are sinners. He just hasn't listed all the categories of sin. Everybody might have their own avenue that they've gone down. Some of you were each of these things. Some of you, maybe all of them. All of you are sinners. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That's the grace of God extending out to equal the mile of our sin overwhelm that and find the redeeming grace of God. Do you realize this describes each of us? 
This is the gospel we have to share with others. You have to have that in the right context or we don't know how to reach out in the name of Christ. It's both conviction of sin and the grace of God. Love the sinner while hating the sin. We have one more passage to deal with. There, there are a whole bunch of passages that I could have gone to. But this tells us more where uh, the sin of homosexuality came from. But in Romans 1, uh, uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 31, I want you to notice that this is a much broader passage than just the one sin. It's talking about the all-inclusive attitude of the sinfulness of all mankind, even this particular sin it spills over into. But it's all-inclusive than even this particular sin. So let's walk through it. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. This is verse 18 of chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Now, we can't unpack this whole passage in terms of, of uh, how people know God. They know enough about God from just living in this world. They may never, never have heard of Christ, but they know that there's a creator. And it says in verse 21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. He gave you life. You owe thanks to him. You ought to glorify him. As God, And we know that in the back of our minds, in our heart of hearts. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. We worship anything else but God. We worship the kinds of gods that can serve us, please us, make the crops come in. Uh, make, make us happier, uh, whatever it is. Our culture really worships pleasure, and our culture worships power. Our culture worships those kinds of things, and the, and the money that can buy them. All of these things in their context, if we understand that we are stewards before God in this position of authority, stewards before God with these resources that we've been able to, to, to uh, earn, stewards of God for the... For the blessings he gives us in the delightful, beautiful day, the pleasures of life. If we recognize them not as things to be worshipped, but as gifts from God to be enjoyed as we would worship him, then we're okay. But we turn to worship those things instead. Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. It's interesting when we have the wrong worship, we t- we, the, the next step is to sexual immorality. We throw off all the old rules to do whatever we want. The baby boomers started this when we were raising our kids, and they said, well, you had it easy in your generation because everybody kind of supported what was right. So we lived in the generation that said, if it feels good, do it. We lived in the generation that threw it all off, that don't trust anybody over 30. We lived in the generation, you know, turn on, tune in, turn on, drop out, the LSD generation. We have the same, 
our human nature is the same. So we have the same temptations, the same issues, and we started kind of the counterculture revolution and gave ourselves over explicitly to uh, deny God and to indulge self. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Now, at this point, if you're beginning to wince, remember this specific, even this, is in the context of everybody and how we all need God's grace. But if it says even this, if you're beginning to wince, I would, I would warn you, don't put yourself in the position of being the editor of the Bible. Where you say, ooh, I'm taking that one out. Don't put yourself even in the position of being the reviewer of the Bible. That, oh, I like it or I don't like it. This one's, this one's not as good. Right? This, one's, this one's kind of embarrassing. Don't review the Bible. It is God's word. Realize the one who gave you life gives you this word so that you can know how he designed you, how he made you, what he thinks about it. And it is convicting of sin. It extends the pole farther that way. It's like those telescoping rods. They start this big and you whip it. He goes, whoosh! So that we can understand his grace expanding out in that direction. It is God's word and it has the message of life and hope. That's the only place to go for it. Furthermore, verse 28, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. See, he's gone back to the general. He didn't just stake on the even, this particular thing. Every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of, what's the biggie here? What's the first in this list? Envy. Can anybody raise their hands and say, I've never, ever struggled with envy in my life? Ever? It heads, this this list in here. Envy. It's a head of murder. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanders. Gossips is when you are entertained by other people's troubles. It doesn't mean we can't share and bear one another's burdens. We ought to be connected with one another. It's all right to talk about each other if your heart is for that person. But if you're entertained by their troubles and you enjoy talking about it, that's in this list. Slanderers, you like to bring people down. God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Oh, I just uh, did you kick? I'll read it again if you want to elbow your kids. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but also approve of those who practice them. If I had read that last verse first, and only that verse, would you not on this subject have said, yeah, our culture out there not only does it, but approves of those. This is applying to everybody generally. This is our sinful nature. The wrath of God is revealed against this, and it drives us down, but he doesn't leave us down. It drives us to the cross of Christ where we find the grace and forgiveness is at the foot of the cross that we look and say, that's what my sin deserved. 
That's what my sins deserve. What Jesus is experiencing right now, not just in his physical pain, but in his spiritual uh, experience where the wrath of God is poured out on him. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is in spiritual agony on the cross, suffering for our sin. And we said, that's what I deserve. But he did this for me because he's the infinite son of God and he can break its power. He'll rise from the dead. He will be triumphant over it and he'll raise us up with him also. See, this is the context we have to approach others with. And without this context for ourselves, I don't think we can love the sinner while hating the sin. We'll just end up hating the sin and not really loving the sinner, just doing lip service to that. Or we'll love the sinner, kind of excusing the sin because we want to be excused too. So with this context, now let's talk about what has happened. We'll spend the last 10 minutes here just talking about uh, what has happened. What the PCA do at the General Assembly? You see, after uh, the Revoice uh, Conference, you have to talk about uh, what the PCA was reacting to. I got a whole bunch of things that uh, I read too much of in the early service, so I'm going to read less of in this service. Uh, but I try to give enough of the mountain peak so that you understand that Revoice, at its heart, is an uh, evangelical movement committed to Scripture. Is that a surprise to you? Go, you hear the concerns, and we forget the right desires. In their statement of faith, I'll just read one of their, their pieces. It says, The Holy Scripture, in its entirety, is inspired by God's Spirit through human authors and constitutes the revelation of God's truth to humanity. It is wholly true and trustworthy in all that it affirms. Whatever the Bible rightly interpreted is found to teach, we are bound to believe and obey. It is our supreme authority in every matter of belief and conduct. That's a great commitment to Scripture. And so are the rest of their statements uh, in their statement of faith. And we would agree with all of them. Then they have a good view of sin. They say, we believe that sin entered the world as a result of the rebellion of Adam and Eve and now permeates every aspect of creation, including human sexuality. Along with every form of sexual desire, apart from the one flesh bond between husband and wife, we believe that same-sex sexual desire experienced by gay, lesbian, bisexual, and other same-sex attracted people is a product of the fall. That same-sex desire is not a pre-fall reality, and that same-sex sexual desire will not exist in the new creation after the return of Christ. Now, I wonder, as I look back at seminars they held a year ago, did they correct their statement of faith or was it already in place? I wasn't able to figure that out. Uh, when I look on their website, did they change it? If they changed it, great, they're trying to bring themselves back in order. If they had it already, then uh, some seminars went beyond it. And they can be called back. But let's recognize their efforts to love the sinner while hating the sin. And we have more in common with Revoice than to reject them. Don't treat Revoice like the world, their brothers and sisters in Christ. However, they did go way over the line, and they opened the door to it with this statement uh, in their, their confessional statements. They said, as those who share one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, we believe that other features within the composite of individual identity, such as nationality, 
ethnicity, gender, or sexual orientation do not change or add to the spiritual identity in Christ. Did you notice that? You see, when we see in Revelation the vision of of the people of God in the new heaven and the new earth, we find every tribe and nation and language. Ethnicity is not sinful. It is a part of our identity. Male and female is a part of our identity. I'm a Christian man. You're a Christian woman. They added sexual orientation as a part of identity. So they'd say, I'm a gay Christian. Now, that's ambiguous. Does that mean I'm a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction? That is, that's perfectly uh, fine because that's the way we all are. Should I as pastor say, I am a greedy pastor. Doesn't that, that comes across as, my greed's okay, and I'm a pastor. Should you say, I'm a selfish Christian? I'm, I'm a philandering Christian. Do, do we say that in any other context? No, we don't. We say, I'm a Christian who struggles with selfishness. I'm a Christian who struggles with my temper. I'm a Christian who struggles with greed. I'm a Christian who struggles with lust. I'm a Christian who struggles with, with alcohol. I'm a Christian who with all sorts of things. Our identity is in Christ. We are, we are forgiven and redeemed, but we're not perfected yet. So we still struggle. We have to put off the old nature. We all are in that boat. And so a person can say, I'm a Christian who struggles with my orientation and sexual desires. If somebody's willing to follow Christ and repent of their sin, and do, we, they should f- find a welcome and a support and embrace in the church. But if they say, I'm a gay Christian, don't jump on them immediately. Just say, what do you mean by that? Do you mean you're a Christian who struggles with being gay? Or are you seeing it's okay to be this way? I'd say, it's not okay to be selfish. It's not okay to be lustful. It's not okay to be greedy. It's not okay to be... Our nature is, is fallen, is corrupt. See the point there? Well, opening that door a little bit, uh, I'll just read. Al Baker was the first church planter here at Sycamore in 1980, and uh, I came in 1982. He actually wrote an article when he found out about the uh, uh, Revoice Conference held last year. Uh, he read about some of the seminars. He, he wrote this. And this He's just quoting the, one of the leaders. He says, one of the workshops in particular caught my attention Models of Queer Theory and Literature and Adventure. The presenter, Grant Hartley, says this about the workshop. For the sexual minority seeking to submit his or her life fully to Christ and to the historic Christian sexual ethic, queer culture presents a bit of a dilemma. Rather than combing through and analyzing to find which parts are to be rejected, to be redeemed, or to be received with joy, Christians have often discarded the virtues of queer culture along with the vices, which leaves culturally connected Christian sexual minorities torn between two cultures, two histories, and two communities. So questions that will have until now, uh, that have until now been largely unanswered remain. What does queer culture, and specifically queer literature and theory, have to offer us who follow Christ? What queer treasure, honor, and glory will be brought into the New Jerusalem at the end of time? This is his self-description of his seminar. And it violates the standards of the statement of faith committed to in revoice. Now, have we ever been a part of something that somebody went farther than we wanted them to go? 
We all have. We get that. But you can see why this raised the alarms at the PCA. So all these overtures came in. The PCA accepted the overtures, established a study committee, which will report next year or, or the following year. Sometimes the committees uh, take a couple of years to uh, get their study completed. And I, I believe it's going to be a really good uh, study. I, I do. That's the prediction is not in hand yet. Because we also at General Assembly affirmed that the Nashville Declaration was, was biblical. And in affirming that, we kind of drew a line in the sand and said, we're not drifting the way many denominations have. But we want to articulate how we would approach uh, these issues as, as our own church. And many denominations have, have done this. So I'm glad for the way the PCA uh, responded by affirming the Nashville Statement just what is the Nashville Statement? I'll tell you a little bit about it. First, I'll tell you uh, some of the signers. There are eight pages of this. Five of them are those who signed it. Included among them are John Piper, J.I. Packer, D.A. Carson, R.C. Sproul, Al Moeller, John MacArthur, uh, Legan Duncan, Alistair Begg, Mark Deaver, Randy Alcorsi. I expect that. Also, Rosario Butterfield and several others that are from the gay and lesbian community who have become Christians. They were involved in articulating this. We've studied Rosaria Butterfield's uh, book, uh, was it The Testimony of an Unlikely Convert, in one of our women's uh, Bible studies. So this is a very inclusive document in terms of who helped make it. And in this document, I would, I would just love to have an hour and a half, and you would not love for me to have an hour and a half. So I'm not going to read it all. I'm just going to read two articles of it to show that it's much more pastoral than many people thought. Just because it says we affirm, we deny, we affirm, we deny, it sounds very doctrinal and not very pastoral. But notice these two articles, articles 8 and 9. We affirm that people who experience sexual attraction for the same sex may live a rich and fruitful life pleasing to God through faith in Jesus Christ as they, like all Christians, walk in purity of life. We deny that sexual attraction for the same sex is part of the natural goodness of God's original creation or that it puts a person outside the hope of the gospel. Article 9, we affirm that sin distorts sexual desires by directing them away from the marriage covenant and towards sexual immorality, a distortion that includes both heterosexual and homosexual immorality. We deny that an enduring pattern of desire for sexual immorality justifies sexually immoral behavior. You see, it's those kinds of, it's really a, a very pastoral statement as well, but it draws a line in the sand with its affirmations of commitment to, to Scripture and to biblical definitions of sin. If you want to, I encourage you just to go forward and uh, read more uh, about it. So that's what the PCA did, affirm the national statement. That's a little bit just an introduction to the national statement. But I want to close by asking you, what is our motivation in calling sin, sin? Our motivation in calling sin, sin uh, can be varied. And some of those motives are not great. Our motive in calling sin, sin should never be self-righteousness. Should never be what our culture is now calling virtue signaling. It's righteousness by outrage. Righteousness by what I'm against. 
In politics, it's righteousness because I'm against the other party. It makes me feel better about myself. That's virtue signaling. So we should not feel better about ourselves by condemning someone else. That's not the point. It should not even be simply to be accurate according to Scripture. Now, you might be surprised at that. We say committed to Christ and to his word. We want to be accurate according to Scripture, but not merely accurate according to Scripture, because that can be a dead orthodoxy. That can be truth without love. That can be defining sin as sin, but not loving the sinner. We hate sin because it hurts people. Now, this is based on the foundation that sin is God's call. He defines what's right and wrong. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the tree of choosing for ourselves what's right and wrong. That's the temptation. So, uh, God is the one who defines it. He told Adam and Eve, this is the tree of life. You can eat of every tree in the garden. This is the tree of life. But don't eat of this tree of choosing for yourself what's right and wrong. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day that you eat of it, you will die. Why do we call sin sin? Why do we hate sin? Because it hurts. It destroys. It breaks up relationships. And we don't want that for people we love. So we, we hate sin out of love for the sinner. Because we don't want them to go down that road. It's like seeing your, your two-year-old pick up the dishwasher detergent and start to guzzle it. What do you do? You say, no! Because you know it's poison. You know it would, would destroy. If you love your child, you can say, ah, each to his own. We hate sin because it hurts people. We call sin, sin out of love because we do not want to see people get hurt or hurt others. Some people may not get hurt because they're just callous and sociopathic, but they're hurting others. We hate sin in ourselves. Yeah, if you tuned out, wake up again, listen to this one. We hate sin in ourselves before we address anyone else. And we turn to Christ in repentance and find forgiveness. And we hate our own sin more than we hate others' sin. That breeds a a loving humility as you would approach somebody else. If you really embody this, you hate your own sin more than you hate other people's sins. If you hate other people's sins more than you hate your own, you're probably virtue signaling. It's a kind of self-righteousness. We want, out of love, to share with others who need it, where we have found forgiveness, healing, restoration, and life. As C. Brown put it, we're beggars telling other beggars where we have found bread. So this is the truth that convicts of sin. This is the grace of God that covers our sin. This is the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's what we have to share. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray. We pray for uh, ourselves that you would work in us the work of the gospel. That we have a humility before you, a thanksgiving before you for what you've done for us in Christ, a desire to follow you in every area of our lives. We pray that then we would have a, a love for others that would 
uh, call us to extend ourselves for them, towards them, to lift them up. While they are yet sinners, let us love them as you loved us while we were sinners. We pray that you would bless all who who are committed to you, committed to your word, who may uh, step over lines, who who get out there and, and mess up, but we pray for them that you would call them to Scripture, that you would found them, but make their efforts effective in calling people to Christ and to follow him and to follow him faithfully. Father, we pray that you would Give us wisdom in the way we treat one another. We pray that anyone who has walked through the doors of this church would find both uh, the, your holiness and your grace. They would be convicted of sin and lifted up. All these Christian paradoxes, we pray that they would find here so that they could have end up resting in the love of God and your love for them. We pray that you would Uh, bless and heal us as a church forgive us uh, for our our callousness in the past towards those with this particular struggle we pray these things in jesus name amen